Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right, good afternoon. Thank you, sir. Welcome. The 18th day of February it is, five minutes after 5 p.m. here on your Tuesday post-holiday edition of Lifeline. Trust you had an enjoyable President's Day, and uh, welcome to the albeit abbreviated work week, back to the uh, the daily grind once again. And we are here as we are each Monday through Friday at this time to address issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program, we're going to be joined by Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. There is a new report out on the state of abortion in the United States. Some aspects of the report, very encouraging. Other aspects, not so. A lot of work yet to be done. We'll get all the details for you coming up later on in this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. As we launch off tonight, a little bit of historical perspective for you on this topic. There have been a number of revolutions that have taken place in the United States over the course of the last century, century and a half. In the 1800s, we went through the Industrial Revolution. Think of things like uh, the telegraph, transportation via rail, um, things of that sort. We underwent our first technological revolution in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, which brought things like the telephone, facsimile, movies, both silent, later sound, radio, and even television. We saw a second technology revolution in the late 20th century that brought us things like satellite communication, CDs, DVDs, cell phones, computing, and yes, even the Internet. Right now, though, some might argue we're on the wave of the next revolution of technology, But could this next wave be revolting or revolutionizing? Things like AI or so-called artificial intelligence, facial recognition, RFID chips, drones, robotics, on and on the list goes. Some of it seems to be very promising. Other aspects of it seems to be very frightening. We'll spend some time talking about this from not just the technological standpoint, but also from the ethical and theological standpoint. We're joined in studio by Keith Koo, managing partner with Guardian Insight Group. He's the host of the Silicon Valley Insider, heard every week on our sister station, KDOW. And Keith, good to have you with us. Hey, Craig. Thanks for inviting me to be on tonight. I know that this is a topic for somebody who is working in the heartbeat, um, uh, sort of ground zero of uh, technology in Silicon Valley. You're a believer as well. And looking at the topics that we're going to touch on today, I know is something that you find quite fascinating. But from a from a technological standpoint, from sort of a Silicon Valley entrepreneurial viewpoint, are there aspects of this, as I suggested personally in my own opening remarks, that are not only fascinating but also frightening at the same time? Oh, absolutely. The implications of technology, and you said it, over the last 40 or 50 years, the rapid pace 
of how we've innovated here in the Valley and elsewhere, there is this thought that we are now at a point where technology is advancing faster than we're able to keep up with in terms of the ethics and those types of questions. Yeah, we, we ask ourselves what are the advancements, what are the possibilities, what are the capabilities here. Um, I, I suppose maybe at certain levels there was a wrestling through with the questions of of what what the implications were with the advent of things like radio back in the 1920s and television in the 19, late 40s and early 1950s. Uh, but it seems as if the technology is moving so fast and the willingness to implement it uh, for not only, hopefully, the greater good, but as well as financial benefit, doesn't seem to be keeping pace with any sort of a um, an ethical discussion related to this. And this came on my radar screen most recently um, based on a news article I read concerning um, Notre Dame and Moore University in Belmont, which announced that it's going to be bringing on a new assistant professor, Professor Maria Bott. <laughs> and you might think, hmm, I wonder, where is she from? Well, she's actually not from. She's an invention of. Um, she is, as the name partially suggests, um, a robot possessing artificial intelligence who will be brought along ostensibly to help uh, students studying uh, computing and uh, computer lab technology um, at Notre Dame here in Belmont, um, how all of this works together and integrates. What, what caught my attention was um, she, or it, maybe better put, uh, granted an interview, and when the reporter asked, well, what is your teaching philosophy, I thought, hmm, can mechanical device have a philosophy? And just, she responded, in saying that she was concerned about caring for students and wanting to improve the quality of life for all living beings. And I thought, hmm, caring and wanting, um, certainly reflective of desire, which typically, historically, um, has been something that's sort of been set aside uniquely for humankind as opposed to, I mean, I don't know that my TV set has a desire as to what channel to be on, uh, but whether it does or not, it has no ability to exercise that desire. Uh, the question, though, when we begin to, to talk about the ways in which things like AI and robotics and um, facial recognition, deep fake videos, all of these things that are on the forefront here that are happening, as we suggest, so quickly and yet the ability of the ethical questions, the ethical debate to keep up seems to be sorely lacking. How much of this do you see uh, beyond the pale of simple fascinating technology that, oh, we can make a box do that or do this? How much of this do you see is also potentially um, having ramifications from a um, eschatological standpoint? Um, mm -hmm. Because i got to tell you, some of this – certainly seems to be around the periphery, uh, maybe not directly referenced in the book of Revelation, but certainly seemingly hinted at. Yeah, these are great questions. I'm, I'm going to take a step back just to give some more context before we dive into eschatology, which has been a hobby uh, my entire life. So when we talk about ethics and we talk about the example you gave with the professor in Belmont and that they want a teaching assistant that can actually be right where with the student and help them along their journey as a student. Let me give you the uh, other article with another professor at Georgia Tech using a teaching assistant as well. And it's much more functional. It's more about the concept we call chatbot. So 
there's a knowledge base of common questions that a university student's going to ask, and that professor is using artificial intelligence to say, hey, Craig just submitted a question about when is the exam going to be? What are my homework assignments? And I have this question about what was the relevance of this topic. And the chatbot with the body of knowledge can regurgitate an answer that says, this is the test on this date. This is the answer you're at. So, so it looks we, for keywords and then responds with right. a pre-programmed sentence to respond to or answer those keywords, phrase right. in a question. And so when we say artificial intelligence, that's both to, depending on the listener, that's both artificial intelligence. Now, when we talk about the eschatological ramifications of that, especially, as you mentioned, in, hidden in the book of Revelation, uh, it's fascinating the amount of technology that we've launched in the last 40 or 50 years that you know, whether you believe Jesus is coming back soon or not, there are parts of the book of Revelation that you cannot understand because the technology John as a first century man writing the book couldn't have known about. So when there's a, a verse that says that when the two witnesses are, are killed by the Antichrist, if we're getting really eschatology into this, um, the whole world knows. Now, communication, not until the advent of radio and then television and then satellites, that wasn't possible. So my entire career has been in finance and technology, and I've just seen the rapid pace of these improvements, both for our lives, but also what are the implications of these technologies when they're all hooked up. I'll give you one example. Right now we have the coronavirus. It's rampant, allegedly, in China. So when you think about that, uh, there was a story where they've said that they've quarantined certain geographies, certain cities in China. And one of the reports was a gentleman who is from Shanghai was actually visiting his family in another province. And that province, when he decided he wanted to break the quarantine, he got into his car, started driving out of the city, and he got a text message from the government. So in China, all their mobile phones are connected by um, an app. And that one, using the license plate reader and facial recognition, knew exactly who he was and said, hey, you know, we know you're leaving the city. Turn around and go back. Or we'll come get you. Wow. Now, you can look at that and say, well, from the standpoint of wanting to maintain the quarantine, to maintain or to, to constrict the ability of the virus to spread to other communities, and you imagine going from, from Hubei to uh, Shanghai, wow, and look at the population. Shanghai is, what, 17, 18 million, the most populated city in China. It's one of them. I mean, uh, there's plenty. It, it's, it, it's, it's certainly significant. Um, you can see the, the best interest of both the government and the, the, the community to want to be able to, to maintain the quarantine. The fact that government authorities were able to use the license plate reader coupled with facial recognition software to confirm and then to communicate a message, um, that in the hands of a good government – seeking to protect its citizens, probably give a thumbs up. That same technology in the hands of a bad actor looking for less than altruistic outcome could be very frightening. Yes, absolutely. Very frightening indeed. Yeah, I mean, there's other stories as well. Uh, I'm sure folks who are in the news, they know that they're using drones to do body scans, temperature scans. Uh, they're, be, they're able to tell somebody on the street in China that, hey, you're not wearing a mask, so go get one. I mean, all these things exist. But the question that we should be asking is, these aren't things that just suddenly happened overnight. The infrastructure to 
put that technology in cities, including cities in the United States and in Europe, those were lots of good intent. I mean, here, here in Fremont, we have license plate readers. They recently had a number of different types of uh, crimes, including, I believe, an alleged murder. And they were able to find the suspects using the license plate readers. So technology in the hands of proper use with proper context and laws, that's good. Uh, when it's taken over, I mean, the, the ethical question about this technology, uh, back to the point you were making just a couple minutes ago, Craig, is what happens when it gets hacked? Or when those that have the authority and control over it are offered money to do something nefarious or there's a change in leadership. I mean, let's use London as an example. London, probably one of the, the earliest adopters of so-called CCTV or closed-circuit television. Um, there the idea was this was going to be a crime-fighting tool. This was going to be a tool at the disposal of police authorities um, that they could have eyes and ears all over the city that they could almost instantaneously respond to a crime taking place, set up rooms with multiple screens and multiple officers monitoring, and when you see something fishy going on, dispense the police. Do it before anybody needs to even get to a telephone to call 911. What a wonderful tool that is. If there is a criminal who knocks off a bank and now goes to escape and you can follow them through CCTV, through the streets of London, and know exactly where they're trying to escape, to and apprehend them, what a wonderful tool in the hands of a government that wishes to use it for the benefit of the community by fighting crime. Sure. Now, again, what happens if the makeup of those that have control of that um, tool suddenly wish to use it for nefarious reasons? So um, a individual writes a letter to the newspaper uh, editorial board um, criticizing the queen and the prime minister, and they decide, we want that person arrested. The ability to follow them through CCTV as they go about their daily business in downtown London, locate them, send the authorities to go and pick them up. I mean, certainly what the Stasi was doing in places uh, like Romania well before the advent of the technology. So I think I, the, the fear in all of this is that if you take the, the wonder of the technology and put it in the hands of the wrong people, this could turn dangerous really quickly. Certainly it can. Uh, we have already talked about where in London. So here's a story. I was actually in London. I was in Amsterdam in 2004 working for Cisco Systems. I was supposed to go to London that afternoon, and that's when the bombing occurred. And this is where the reality of London's infrastructure for CCTV really came to the forefront because they were able to find those perpetrators almost instantaneously to their doorstep. They were able to track through the cameras and know where they lived, and they showed up under some and hauled them away. I was sent back home. I was not allowed to go to London. Uh, even earlier than that, though, London was actually adopting technology that we've been using in Vegas for years because of card counting. So all the Vegas casinos are linked up, and they did it as a necessity to understand how uh, – even if they compete as casinos, where the card counters were. Mm -hmm. So we just heard, what was it, a month or two months ago when the U.S. took out Soleimani via drone? It was very precision strike. When you hear the word precision strike, which means very limited loss to uh, civilians, it's really targeted towards the intended recipient of that 
of that munition, right? Yeah, I mean, if you know the guys <laughs> in the city, blow up the entire city, and you know you've got him along with 150,000 right. other people. Right. So the fact that they pretty much just took out him in whatever context of bodyguards, um, that is the technology working. And back to a nefarious actor who takes control of that, right? When, uh, I forget if it was almost 10 years ago, when the Iranians allegedly shot down one of our drones and then reverse engineered it. And that's how they're able to take command of it, right? So that's an example of, well, what happens if they actually figured out the guidance systems of all of our drones, U.S. drones, right? And, and we see this, too, because, again, allegedly, the U.S. actually had uh, a supplier for drone technology, small drones, not, not industrial drones. And they had announced uh, two years ago, I talked about it on my show, two years ago they had a moratorium on flying these drones. And, you know, I, I read all these news about technology, sometimes it's government-related, and, you know, in a footnote it says the government has renewed the moratorium on this set of uh, manufactured drones from a, you know, questionable regime that was a supplier to us. And they're saying that they will only use it in emergencies because they're afraid that those drones might be compromised. Hmm. Interesting. I started our conversation tonight talking about some of the markers in history of moments when key aspects of technology has uh, been developed and brought advancement to, to humankind. Along inside of almost that identical period of time have been a number of significant bad actors on the world stage. When you think about some of this technology put to use for the good of humankind, crime fighting and so forth, get taken out the bad guy, all good and wonderful. What happens when it falls in the hand of people like a Mussolini or an Adolf Hitler? We'll talk a bit about that. We'll talk about the grander question of the ethics of it all as our conversation continues. Keith Koo with us today in studio, host of Silicon Valley Insider. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. 522, let's get a look at the road ahead, see what that looks like on this Tuesday. Back to work day from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back in studio tonight. Keith Koo, managing partner with Guardian Insight Group, host of Silicon Valley Insider. We are talking today about um, the ethics of all the technology that's out there. And uh, AI, certainly a, a growing uh, conversation. Robotics, another growing conversation. The ways in which technology can be used for good or for evil. One of the things, Keith, that we touched on um, here off the air during the break, there was a story about uh, Japan and Japan having a shortage of people that are able to care for its grain population, its elderly population. And so they are now beginning to press into service robots yeah. that can be there to provide medication on time, can even engage in basic conversations, read stories to an elderly person. And when you couple that with their diminished mental capacity, if it's somebody who's up in years or is dealing with the onset of dementia or Alzheimer's, um, you can clearly see where the patient can be completely fooled into thinking that this is a real human being. They're gaining a sense of comfort out of all of this. And meanwhile, we're able to sort of shift our burden of responsibility um, and care onto a box full of lights and wires. 
Yeah, this is exactly where we're headed as a society. So let's let's take the uh, being a believer out of the question for a moment there, right? So Japan, first adopters of automotive robots, and we talk about where back then a robot could cost $5 million. It wasn't so much the cost. It was that service jobs are not seen as a good profession in Japan. So for that same $5 million robot, you could have 1,000 workers in China, and you'd get the same production, same output, right? So now we talk about the uses of artificial intelligence and robotics. And so I've co-hosted an innovation contest with NTT, which is like the largest technology provider, uh, equivalent to an IBM in Japan. And so the last two years, it's an innovation contest. And some of the top companies who've won these startup competitions are from the United States, all have a med tech or health tech use case. And so there have definitely been winners in trying to solve for an aging population. And so on the surface, you think about, oh, this is great. I have, in essence, a artificial intelligence system, whether it's an actual robot or mechanical robot or if it's a computer system, that can keep track of our aging population. So my, my parents, who you know, both just recently passed, they needed help with medications. They needed help with assisted living, et cetera. So if you had the ability for a system to be on top exactly of your meds, giving you the right dosages, and being able to dispense that, that's clearly a benefit. Mm -hmm. And then you get into, well, shrinking population, um, sometimes one child or zero children. Uh, and in the Asian culture, uh, that is definitely important that the support system is the next generation. Well, they're working. They don't have that ability. So to be able to do – so we have we talked about chat bots in the earlier segment, uh, contextual bots. So the ones that can actually interpret sentiment, sentiment bots. That's getting into what is uncharted territory. When we talk about ethics, you and I as believers think about ethics, and we talk about if there's a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. Let's step back. When we talk about ethics from a programmatic standpoint, we're talking about algorithmic biases, which is the computer equivalent to confirmation bias. And really, many programmers are just trying to say that my job isn't to program ethics the way we think of ethics. It's to ensure that the system is doing exactly what it's supposed to do as designed. Wow. So let, let's complicate this. <laughs> we have a huge grain population here in America, 80 million baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964. 10,000 of us reach retirement age every day. As that population grows and ages, the need for um, retirement homes, the need for medical care is going to increase. Um, will we find people willing to go into elder care services to keep pace with the demand? Don't know. Will it be a job that pays enough to make it worth the while of individuals? Don't know. Could they look at AI as a means of dealing with some of the challenges? Um, well, at, at certain levels, it makes sense. If, and we talked about this off the air, if as the only child of aging parents, and I need to go out and make a run to the grocery store or handle other duties, but I don't want to leave my ailing dad at home in bed by himself, and I have a bot that can be there to um, check his blood pressure, 
give the medication on time, make sure that he doesn't fall out of bed while I can go run and do my duties. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, that allows me to make sure father's taken care of while I can still take care of what I need to handle. Right. Where do we draw the line when we say, well, you know, this whole death and dying thing, very uncomfortable topic. Mother's dealing with dementia. She doesn't really make sense much anymore. What if we could develop AI to the point where it could be there to provide a comfort for her and get me off the hook? At what point, then, do we abrogate our responsibility as human beings to care for a loved one? If we're able to artificially create a human connection, I'm using my air quotes here that the listeners can't see with my fingers. If we can artificially create a human connection and take advantage of one's diminished mental capacity to tell the difference. I mean, poor eyesight at a distance. Can you tell the difference between a bot and a human being? Maybe, maybe not. How quickly do we suddenly then abrogate our humanity and therefore lose our humanity if these conveniences are marketed as such and later on are really means of just escaping our responsibility. That's frightening. It is frightening. And I think that is such a interesting proposition that you're talking about if we lose our humanity. So let's park that in a population that's aging, we're really not talking about the upper echelon, the upper 1% of the economic world because they're going to be able to afford whatever quality of care they want. They can have 10 people around the right. clock watching them, no problem. So Money's not an issue. So we're really talking about 80, the, 20, the 90, 10. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and so here's the thing, Craig. When you, when you take faith outside of this, what you just proposed, and you're saying, is it right or wrong to abrogate our human existence? There are people who believe in this concept of singularity. They want to become one with the universe. And some people believe that that's going to happen in digital format in the next 20 to 50 years, right? So they're not actually thinking that that's, a, that's not a moral dilemma for them. So when we talk about having systems and services on robots that can tend to an aging population, there are many people who are quite okay with that. Mm-hmm. It's not a moral dilemma. It's a goal. To some, mm-hmm. especially some who really don't have any personal ties. And that's where I think the sad part is I think it's a society – and I'm guilty of being addicted to my devices, but as a society, we're becoming disconnected. So I'm not so much concerned that there will be improvements in technology that will help us in our day-to-day lives. I do worry that we're going to be disconnected from our human existence, and that take it to the next step. The next step is where the system decides when it's time for you to go. What's scary about all of this is that man has already demonstrated down through the millennia and almost perfected our capacity in the 20th century to engage in, in, in the most cruel behavior, the, 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 the most debased behavior toward each other. Um, the ability for this to erode away, chip away at any modicum of humanity that has characters of uh, compassion and concern, love, Sympathy, empathy, all of those emotions that make up who we are as human beings, and and slowly that is eroded away, initially done through the notion of, well, 
would you rather dad go back to my example be in the house by himself while you're shopping or have the ai have the robot there looking after him in your stead well that's an easy an easy answer to that um what if you suggest this begins to move on a faster and faster pace where we've already demonstrated through war and torture in Nazi Germany and, and, and other horrific examples of, of, of man's ability of, of inhumanity toward man uh, to, to solely then say, you know what, for the, stu- the dirty stuff that we don't like to get involved with, we're going to turn it over to artificial intelligence. So we, we talked about uh, five, six, seven years ago as California was debating things like physician-assisted suicide. And uh, we'll all recall um, Sarah Palin talking about having suicide panels set up, or, or death panels, rather, that would decide based on certain criteria who, under what health conditions and what financial situation and what age and all this other criteria um, was... Um, qualified for certain levels of health care and who might be termed as sort of they've lived their life, they've made their contribution, they are never going to improve any further, they're not going to go back to work full-time and contribute to society, and so right now they've moved from the contribution phase to the drain-on-society phase, so to speak. And so um, if we could not conceive of panels of doctors making the decisions as to who lives and who dies why would we think it would be impossible for banks of AI uh, with predetermined algorithms that are set in there to look at a series of data and then come to a an anonymous essential decision and pull the plug on somebody? Right. And, and we as a society are already allowing the precursors of that type of thought to happen. Uh, a couple years ago, I did a story where we, we've heard about IBM. we heard about Watson. Watson is this massive artificial intelligence engine that originally the precursor to Watson beat the number one chess player in the world mm-hmm. and then won on Jeopardy. And really what they're proving with that is that computer could then be applied to all these different other use cases. Uh, some controversy about how successful it was, but IBM is using Watson internally to write predictive performance reviews. So is there a sense then that we're beginning to to cross that threshold from where what traditionally had been garbage in, garbage out, meaning the only capacity that a machine had was based on the capacity we granted it to the ability where if it has artificial intelligence, therefore the potentiality of artificial learning and therefore artificial conclusion making that could run amok, meaning break off from any pre-programmed norms that we put into a system where, unbelievably, and this is getting to sound like, you know, Captain Kirk and, and all of that, but that there could be a time when artificial intelligence could, for want of a better term, break free from the constraints and start making decisions on its own apart from what we've told it should be the foregone conclusion and therefore run amok? Yes and no. I don't, I don't personally think we're going to get to a Terminator Skynet situation. The machines situation. are not marching down yeah. the middle of, of Market Street to take over. The, the, computing, <laughs> okay. the computing power doesn't exist yet. Now, there's a thought, there's another topic for another show, quantum computing, and that's orders of magnitude um, faster than computing today, and we're on the precipice of that. But I do think 
what you said does happen already, but in a much smaller scale. So, for instance, uh, I was on my way on a business trip to Houston, and I get a text from my credit card company that my credit card was canceled, and I call them up, and they said, well, have you ever been, did you just use your credit card in, I don't know, North Dakota? I'm like, no, I've never been in North Dakota. It's like, well, our predictive AI, they didn't say predictive AI, I know what that is, but they just said, hey, our algorithms picked up some unusual activity at a McDonald's in North Dakota, and we automatically shut your card off, and we're sending you a new one, right? Now, I'm on a business trip, I have another credit card, but that is exactly the precursor of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's not where they're taking over the world, and they're going to, like, monitor us and take us out with a flying robot. That that won't happen on its own. It won't run amok. But AI is sensitive enough, is advanced enough that it can make certain decisions. And what I worry about, back to the algorithmic bias conversation, is that whoever's programming that is the danger. So here's an example. China is actually way more advanced. I'm probably going to upset a lot of people, but China is way more advanced in artificial intelligence than any other part of the world. They have helping Africa industrialize. They were missing a population of African faces for their facial recognition technology. So they had lots of Europeans, they had lots of East Asians and lots of South Asians, but they had very few African faces. What do they do? They bought a billion faces from the different African governments. They were able to put their facial recognition everywhere and said, we want to buy that population of data so we have accurate data. And with that accurate data, because you just said this, they it's called machine learning. They train the data to be more accurate. And as it gets more accurate, that's the self-learning that comes in with artificial intelligence. What's frightening about this is that, that Craig Roberts sitting here in San Francisco could go on this radio station, make a comment that is deemed to be critical of Beijing – and then decide a year from now, I'd love to go on a tour and go see the Great Wall of China. Actually been there several times, but would, would like to do that. Hop on an airplane and disembark at the Capitol and have a camera pick up my face. And your voice. And my voice. And be stopped even before I make it to immigration. And because the comments that I made on the radio a year ago have been have been identified as being attributed to me and linked to my face, they can stop me at the border and put me back on the very same next next airplane. End of story. They could, which is why I was very careful to say regime. Wow. <laughs> as you see, we're beginning to really peel back layers of an onion here, and, and the deeper you go, only the, the deeper that all of this gets. When we come back, I want to have you comment, Keith, as to the danger of deep fake videos. Sure. This is starting to gain some momentum in the headlines, particularly in relationship to the November election. And uh, we'll talk about that and just how far dangerous something of that sort could be. Our conversation with Keith Koo, managing partner, Guardian Insight Group, host of Silicon Valley Insider, heard Fridays at uh, 1 p.m. 1 p.m. And Saturdays at 10 on KTRB. On Okay, good enough. All right, we'll take a time out, come back with more as Lifeline continues after this update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's amazing in our conversation this afternoon with Keith Koo how uh, nearly an hour has slipped through our fingers and we barely touched the surface of all of this, which I think is demonstrative of the notion of how, how deep and wide and varied and involved and changing 
all of this technology is, and of course, all of it having the capacity to aid our lives or make a living hell of our lives. Let's talk about the elections. On an increasing basis, Keith Koo, we're hearing about, well, be aware of the danger of deep fake videos. And as I shared with you, when I first saw them a few years ago, I thought, ah, this is close, this is cute, but any person who pays a not modicum of, of attention to this can tell this is phony. Until about three weeks ago, I saw a video done by a comedian in which he, he wonderful comedian in terms of, of being an impersonator, impersonates uh, pretty accurately probably a, a dozen voices, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bush 43, um, so on and so forth. And they morph his face, same suit coat, but morph his face into those individuals as he switches characters, yeah. as he switches voices. He is so good. And the the video emulation is so good that you sit there, and I, I, I was absolutely glued to the TV set thinking, here it is. Now, this is cute and entertaining. What about in the hands of somebody who wants to create a political video and has the president saying, or has Nancy Pelosi or whomever, in, insert candidate here, crazy outlandish things that maybe not for wide publication, maybe not an ad on broadcast television, but it makes the rounds on Facebook. It makes the rounds on YouTube before they clamp it down. Meanwhile, five million people have seen this, and they are thoroughly convinced that, yes, I heard Barack Obama utter those words, when in fact, in reality, it never happened. Yep. And it's funny. My wife will tell you that I study news left and right. I'm a news junkie, right? Don't sleep much. So deep fakes is becoming a real problem. And the real why, reason why it's a real problem is people don't take the time to actually, to the term trust but validate. People mm-hmm. are not taking that time. So technology has definitely gotten better where deep fakes is becoming a real issue. I, I spoke a little while back. There was a funny story commercialized. There was a very popular internet model called Lil Marquela. Uh, she was an 18-year-old Brazilian that was shilling for cosmetics and mm, fashion. I remember the story. And what happened was, because you know, I grew up in the Max Headroom time, so there was this question for a year, is she a digital person pretending to be a human, or is she a human pretending to be a digital person? And that was answered when her digital rival, so another company, outed her as a completely made-up fictional being. Mm-hmm. And she was generating millions of dollars a year in sponsorships. And, and huge following uh, on social media. This mm-hmm. company was located in Silicon Valley. It was backed by one of the venture capital firms, and they were producing like five personalities. So it wasn't just her. There were four others, including men. And so this is a completely fabricated personality, but she still looked digitized. Now we talk about deep fakes. Back to artificial intelligence, and I'll be quick. Artificial intelligence coupled with a concept called machine learning, which is where you pull all this data together. So imagine, why did Watson beat the chess player? Is because Watson can play millions of games. And remember them all. And remember them all. So deep fakes is the same thing. Training Craig Roberts' voice, your face, your mannerisms. And the computer can stitch all that together. And unless you're a forensic expert you in video technology, you will not know the difference. Now, how dangerous could this be? Well, let's give an example. So somebody goes out there and creates a deep fake video of Donald Trump saying, um, at noon tomorrow, we are commencing an attack against North Korea. We are going to be dropping, you know, 10 hydrogen bombs on Pyongyang. Somebody in Pyongyang sees that, Mm -hmm. 
and goes, oh, my gosh, we need to take a preemptive strike. Yeah. And Kim launches against us. Or the person sitting at home who is a little bit uh, conspiratorial in their thinking anyway sees that and says, well, my God, the world is going to end tomorrow. I don't want to die in a hellfire of brimstone and and a, a nuclear explosion. I'm going to commit suicide right now. Could that happen? Well, not only could it happen, it's happened to a lesser scale with the accidental text messages to the Hawaii oh, was yes. last year. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, good point. <laughs> that wasn't even deep fake. I mean, as humans, back to the need to trust but verify, uh, there was that incident in Hawaii where a text message said that it was an incoming North Korean missile, and everyone freaked out for, was it 20 minutes or something like that? And then, like, oh, no, our bad. So the state, our bad. That was just a test message. And it happens all over the place. And so... That's not even deep fake, Craig. So you're asking the question, could that happen with the deep fake? Yes, it absolutely could happen with the deep fake. All right, let's bring this full circle. And again, I apologize to listeners. Unfortunately, this is one of those topics that just gives and keeps on giving. But we, we, we shared earlier about some of the technology in relationship to the CCTV, the ability to uh, use monitoring as uh, crime fighting in places like London. You mentioned cases of, of uh, murder and, and strong arm robberies committed in the East Bay that were solved because city officials had access, police had access to um, video and so forth. All wonderful things. You also talked about the case of the coronavirus where somebody who had been outside of their hometown, coronavirus hits, quarantine hits, tired of this, I want to get back to my family, hops in the car, innocently, I'm just going to get out of the cover of darkness and head back home. License plate readers capture it. AI or or, or facial recognition software confirms it's him, and he gets a message saying, we know who you are, we know where you are, we know what you're trying to do, you better turn around and get back into the quarantine zone, or you're going to spend the next X number of years in jail. You look at that and say, well, that technology that's being forced on the people of China, they don't get a vote, they don't get a chance to go to the ballot box and say, yeah, we want CCTV cameras everywhere. Yes, we vote for facial recognition. We are going to grant Beijing access to our DNA, to our retina scans, to our fingerprint scans. It's just happening. Could something like that happen here? Yes. But there's a big difference at this point in time in history. The biggest difference between a regime like we just talked about and the U.S. is we actually do it today, but we give consent. Well, now, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? Well, if you use Facebook or if you use Twitter or LinkedIn or you subscribe to Comcast, you're, you're actually giving consent. Here's a f- really interesting story. I was at a Starbucks a couple years ago in a business meeting, and the gentleman I was with is very flashy and he was talking about three very specific things. A Panamera, Porsche Panamera, a Sony camera, and an Omega watch. Very Three very specific things. Now, for me, if you listen to my show, I do a cyber tip every week, so I teach people how to lock their stuff down. So my phones, the microphones are set to default as off. Most people's phones are set to default of on. So your device is always listening. When I got home... Alexa, did you hear that? <laughs> there's a joke. There's a really funny joke about that, Craig. So... When I got home on one of my computers, those three exact items were scrolling on my Facebook ads. And the reason why that happens is there, there is a law. Facebook does adhere to a law that says that it cannot record me. But it doesn't say that it can't record you when I'm talking. So by inference, it might not know that I'm specifically there, but it knows that 
the people around me. It has predictive analytics. It knows that out of a group of people at a Starbucks, and some people whose microphones are on, it knows that I'm close enough that probably everybody in the round that circle in the room got the same three things scrolling on their Facebook. Wow. So what you're telling me is that when I sign up for the Facebook account, when I get my new Google account, whatever it is that I might be signing up for, uh, as I put in all of my data and here's my name and my telephone number, et cetera, et cetera, and I scroll all the way to the bottom of this one little box to check after pages and pages and pages of what looks like the telephone book, that buried somewhere in there is consent? Yes. And each and every one of us, if we want to be on Facebook and chat with our grandkids or be able to post neat pictures of the dog that we have or the vacation that we just went on, we all wittingly, though perhaps not knowingly, grant access every day. The term is opt-in or opt-out. There was a New York Times reporter, I believe, who did a test. He actually had a Google Pixel back then, latest Google phone, and he had one in a box never been used before, and he traveled around with it for about five days in New York City. And then he turned on the brand new one, and the brand new one had 90% of the data, location data, that his own phone had, and it never had been registered. So you can see that by default, it's already set to on. Your job is to figure out how to turn it off. I talk about that, those kind of things all the time. But yeah, your job is to understand what you're doing. And that's where the majority of the public isn't educated. They, they wouldn't have the capacity to know what to do. So if we, if we don't want to get caught up in this, and someday we may be forced to. In fact, arguably, if you want to participate in Facebook, you're forced to. Mm-hmm. Because you have the option to say no. And when you say no, they say thank you very much for visiting. End of story. Um, it sounds like beyond the notion of don't check the box or even the notion of make sure you turn off certain permissions for whatever it might be, the camera, the microphone, etc., um, you, you almost come down to the point where if you want complete anonymity, uh, put a hood over your head and take the battery out of your cell phone. I think you're going to move to uh, one of the states like Montana and Wyoming and go off-grid. If we wish to remain connected to society, though... Uh, it's going to get ugly, isn't it? I don't think there's a, a realistic option of having a choice. It's just how much data do you give up. Wow. Well, that was an unsettling conversation. Come by again in 100 years, would you? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's vital information that all of us need to be aware of, which is the reason why I asked Keith, uh, knowing his knowledge and fascination with all of this, to come on the program today. And we'd love to have you back again because, as I said earlier, we've just sort of peeled back just a couple of layers, just a couple of casual layers of the onion here. But this is so broad, so wide, and the potentiality of impacting our lives for the good or for the detriment is gargantuan. It really is. I thank you, Keith, for coming in. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me. Keith Koo, Managing Partner, Guardian Insight Group, host of Silicon Valley Insider on our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer. Give us the times again. 10 a.m. Saturdays and 1 p.m. on Sundays. All right. Check it out. You can catch them online, too, at gigsv.biz. Or svin.biz. Got it. 604, let's get caught up on some traffic here, shall we? We'll run over to the KFAX Traffic Center and see what's going on.